What we're going to do today as we talk through uh, the Word of God is we're in our Grow series where we are walking through systematically the fruit of the Spirit and we're taking uh, one aspect at a time. And so we have been making our way through. We did love and joy and peace. And so today we get to everybody's favorite, patience. Everybody loves patience. Everybody here is patient. No one has any issues with impatience. Uh, this is where everybody likes to be. It occurs to me as we talk about patience that we have become a celebrity culture. We're a celebrity culture. We idolize celebrities. We want to watch the Academy Awards to see what our favorite stars would wear, who wins what. We watch uh, sports because celebrities, there's a certain thing about these public, very public figures and our ability to live through them. We have taken on a bit of that celebrity culture ourselves in social media. Social media allows us to live sort of our own little celebrity life, where I am the star of my own show, and people follow me on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you are. People like to see what I'm up to. I put a picture up, and people like it. And this is our own little miniature celebrity culture. What's interesting about it is the same thing is true for star athletes, movie stars, as it is for you and I, is that character isn't seen in the spotlight. That in the three hours that your favorite NFL star is on the field on a Sunday afternoon, they have a whole lot of other hours, Monday through Saturday, where they're living a normal, semi-normal life. And character is seen in those hours, not in the three on the field, it's the others where character is seen. The same is true, you can watch a two-hour movie and yet this person... This person doesn't exist as that character. They are a real human with characters somewhere deep within them. You and I, we may put certain things out for the world to consume in our little personal celebrity culture. And yet our true character is not seen in the spotlight. Our true character is seen somewhere else. I would say that the kind of person you are is mostly determined by the way you live in the mundane moments of life. I'll say it this way. uh, Nobody struggles with some of the main Ten Commandments, right? There's a couple of those that we start asking questions and we got to wrestle with, but like, I don't know how many of you have someone walk into your house, someone that loves you and trusts you and goes, you know what, you need to pray for me, I'm really struggling with the thou shall not murder one. <sighs> I'm, you know, I was driving over here and there was this guy and he was, he, he, the light was green and he didn't go and I just, I literally almost killed him. Like that doesn't happen. That's not a problem for us. We don't struggle with Thou shalt not kill. I don't know when the last time you were at the grocery store and you were looking at like the frozen turkeys and you're like, you know what? I think I'm just going to steal that. I think I'm owed that. It's not an issue for us. We don't struggle with kind of the big, obvious things. But being patient is really hard. The big ones, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Okay. But it's the little things, it's the mundane moments that expose us and the places where our hearts can continue to grow. Some of us, uh, if we were honest with ourselves today, and my, my hope is that we will be, some of us would be up for Best Actor Award or Best Actress if other people viewed our lives one way and yet we know deep down there's something else going on. Who we really are is not seen in our moments in the spotlight, but in the shadows of our hearts, quiet moments. So this morning we're going to be in the uh, book of James, chapter 5. Verse 7 says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers or sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. First thing I want to see is in verse 7 through 9, it has this idea of be patient with others. Be patient. The Greek word there literally means slow to anger. So it would say be slow to anger in verse 7. Or in verse 8, it says you too be slow to anger and stand firm. If you are holding a King James Bible this morning, A, thou art much more holy than us, but it probably says long-suffering. That, that translation is actually better in this scenario, I would say. It doesn't say be patient. It says be long-suffering, which is not a word we typically use. And yet, when you really start feeling that word out, that's what the heart of this is getting at. Be long-suffering. And then it speaks about this farmer, this, this farming concept and, and not coming from a farming region, and now I live in a farming region. This is interesting to me. But there's this, this kind of undercurrent of delayed gratification here as we talk about what does it mean to be patient? The farmer and the sown seed. So, so what you need to know, in Israel, um, the rains come typically October, November, and then March and April. And so I think it's a little different than here in, in when you want it to rain, but basically you do a little bit of research in what you find about uh, crops in, in this area of the Middle East, is that if you pull the crop too early, let's say it's late October and the rains haven't come, in October, uh, November is uh, the fruit, olives, fruit, and then in the spring, uh, April-ish, is when they have wheat and barley in that region. But let's say you're getting there and you pull the crop too early, right before the rains, because listen, this is subsistence farming, right? When, When I need more food, it's three minutes down the road, it's a checkout cart, and I'm out. When they need more food, they're watching it grow. They're watching their next year's subsistence come in. And so I would imagine there's some anxiety, even impatience, as the farmer waits for his crop to come to full maturity to harvest. Because whatever it is that he can pull is what he gets for the year to come. And what we know to be true by reading about this region, by trusting people who've written about it, is that those rains, those final rains, right before they pull the crop November, April, those rains add up to 30% to the yield. And so to pull in late October before the rains come, because maybe you're worried the rains aren't going to come, and maybe they're going to die there on the vine, so I need to pull it now, as opposed to waiting one more week, the rains come, and they fatten up 30%. That's the difference in months of subsistence. So for the farmer, what he's literally looking at is patience is required for him to get the full yield on what he's sown. If you think about it another way, patience requires faith. So the farmer's watching his crops in the field, watching, you know, doesn't have the weather channel. He's watching the horizon, hoping that the rains are coming. Hope requires something greater. If he's going to leave it in the ground, what is he showing? He's showing faith. Faith that God will send the rain. Faith that if he leaves it another day, it's not going to die. It's not going to rot. It's going to be okay. Reality is many would pull early, and they would still get their crop, but in a sense, they'd rob themselves of the blessing of that other 30% that was to come. This is an issue for us, right? We, we live in a want-it-now culture. 
And what we do when we want it now, what we do when we uh, show impatience and we become kind of instant gratification seekers, what we end up doing is robbing ourselves of the blessing that God has for us. There are people in this room that are uh, healing. Healing takes patience. There's people in this room that are mourning. Mourning just takes more time. People in this room that are looking for an answer to a prayer. I say every week, everybody in this room is in a battle. Everybody's fighting a fight, big or small. Everybody has something that you would go to the Lord and say, God, if you would do this, wow. We want the answer now. And what this is saying is long-suffering. Being able to delay gratification is a beautiful, faithful thing, and that it's entirely possible that simply waiting on God will increase the harvest, will increase the beauty of the answer to the prayer. It doesn't mean it'll be fun. As the stomach growls of the farmer as he waits, he really wants to pull that crop, but he knows time will come. Verse 9 says, don't grumble then. Don't grumble against one another. Grumbling, I think, is like candy. It's easy. It's sweet. You kind of feel better when you get it out of your system a little bit. I think of grumbling as kind of these thought bubbles, you know, in a cartoon when, when there's like the spoken bubble of what you actually say, and then there's the thought bubble of what you're just thinking in the background. In most of our days, I think we speak about a tenth of what we think. You're dealing with somebody and you're listening and it, all, all your little thought bubbles are coming out. And then you go, uh-huh, no, that's wonderful. I'm so interested in that. And your thought bubbles are saying, please stop talking, please stop talking, please stop talking. These are these scripts running just below the surface. This is something we got to be honest about. We have this grumbling thing that we do, except nobody knows we do it because we do it in those bubbles. My wife has an Etsy shop, an online craft business. She paints things. People all over the world buy stuff. So what that means is she has to ship stuff to people all over the world. And what that means is I live in her house and I become her assistant. And I find myself at the post office quite often with a stack of paintings going to who knows where. And the problem with the post office, I don't know if you've been there lately, is this is not the most modern operation we have in America. They're running like a $3 billion annual loss. I don't know what they're doing. They got lines out the door. And I find myself going into the post office with a handful of addressed, ready, I'm ready to go. And then there's just like, like the unwashed masses of society, right? Total honesty. And my thought bubbles start going off. What are they doing? Why are they talking to her? Don't talk to her. Transact and leave. They're like sharing pictures of their children with the lady behind the counter. I don't know what's happening. I'm, I'm like, I, places to be. I'm very important. Do you know how important I am? Person in front of me, I don't know what they're doing. They're like filling out the form in line. I'm like, come on. There should be a line for people who are unprepared and then the line just for me because I'm ready. Somebody smells in here. I don't know who that is, but we're going to figure this out. Right? I start just judging every single person. Every single one of you has a problem. You know why you all have problems? Because you're in front of me in line and you're slowing down my day. You ever need to be somewhere and you go through the grocery store? And you really, really uh, have done a good job of limiting yourself to between 10 and 15 items because you want to be in the express lane. So into the express lane you go with your carefully selected 12 items for the dinner party you're going to, and what do you find in front of you in the express lane? But somebody who apparently has never learned to count, and they have 31 items, and you're horrified. 
And you do that thing, I do that thing. When you count for them as they're processing and then through, right? Seven, eight, 12, 17, 21. You're, you know, and you're just like, we're all, we can all see the sign, 15 items or less, right? What is your problem? This is not a society. And these are the thought bubbles on your head because when the person sheepishly looks back and goes, gosh, I didn't know I had so much. Sorry about that. You go, oh, no worries. No problem. It's great. Got nowhere to be. But what's happening in my soul is grumbling. Ah, these people don't understand. Oh, these people aren't doing this right. Ah, it's grumbling. Why do we grumble? Because we need someone to blame. It isn't enough that the checkout line is long and slow. It isn't enough that the post office is inefficient. What I need... I need to know whose fault it is. And so I blame the lady who's showing her pictures of her grandkids to her old friend who works at the post office. I, I blame the guy who hasn't filled his form out. Yeah, I blame the person who, full disclosure, I moved here in a week in. I, I was at Kroger and I went into a line with my 43 items and I only realized after he started checking me out that I was in the express lane. And I felt really bad and I said I was sorry to the guy behind me. He said, oh, no worries. I knew what he was thinking. We need to know whose fault it is. Why? Why is it so important for us to have these fault, thought, blaming things? Because we are constantly looking for ways to be superior. Ways to prove ourselves and prove to ourselves that we're good enough. And so if that person's unprepared, then I'm, I'm really prepared. And if they can't count, well, I can count. And every time I pull, I mean, it's, it's middle school all over again. If I can pull them down the rung just one bit, I can climb a little higher. I feel a little better about myself. Grumbling is almost always pride. And so the opposite of that, this long-suffering, this patience, would then be humility. What we have to understand is impatience is rarely the sin that we're up against. I would say impatience is almost never a sin. I think it's a symptom of sin. Pride is the sin. Pride is what's saying, I'm important here. I, I'm in charge here. I, I, my time matters. That's, that's all pride. Impatience is the outcome of the symptom of that. Looking at my watch and grumbling is not the sin. The sin is my pride that says somehow my three minutes is worth more than their relationship. So how do I become more patient with others? That becomes the question every week. We go, well, okay, that's great that you exposed us all for being impatient, but how do we fix it? Well, it isn't through exhortation, right? You can't yell yourself into greater patience. You can't yell other people into greater patience. Anybody who's ever been on a road trip with kids knows this, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Eventually, usually who's ever driving explodes. Maybe that's just my car. And you yell, and you, no, we're not there. I'll tell you when we're there, you know? And you look back, and the children look, you know, your demon horns grow out because you're just an evil person at the moment, and they're, I don't want to hear it anymore. No more of this. And then, ostensibly, what happens is, like, four seconds later, they just whisper it. Are we there yet? <laughs> you know, and you just want to drive your car into the nearest ravine and just be done with it and say, I'm out. You guys walk. Get there on your own. That doesn't work. You can't yell someone else into greater patience. You also can't uh, kind of self-flagellate and whip yourself into your own greater patience. That's the other piece is that we, see, we seem to think that it, I could be more patient if I would just remind myself that I need to be more patient. 
And so you're waiting in line at the post office and you're just like, oh, God, I need to be more patient. How do I do this? Just get more patient. Why aren't you more patient? And you start self-talking yourself into patience. And before you realize it, you've snapped the canvas in half and you're sitting staring at everybody and there's smoke coming out your ears or you're white knuckling through the, as you're driving through the drive through lane and nobody's taking, you just, you can't do it. It's stress. Why am I not more patient? I'm just going to yell at myself. I'm going to beat myself up until I get there. If it hurts enough, maybe I'll be more patient. That doesn't seem like it's working, does it? reality. No exhortation, no self-flagellation. The only thing that drives us to greater patience, to greater long-suffering is repentance. To become slower to anger is to see yourself honestly. Think about it this way. How have you tested the patience of God and been given grace? How have you tested the patience of God and still been given grace? To grow in patience, we have to first grow in our awareness of how we've tested God's patience. To grow in patience, we have to first grow in our awareness of how we've tested God's patience. That's the bucket that has to be filled. There's no white-knuckling yourself to a greater long-suffering, to greater patience, to being slower to anger. You'll never afford to others that which you can't see has first been afforded to you. How can I be patient with others unless I recognize that God, the creator of the universe, has been so deeply patient with me? And so we look to blame so we can appear more blameless. But that's just our pride filling in the gaps when we forget about grace. So it's only when we see each other honestly and we see ourselves honestly that we can love. So impatience with God, verse 10 and 11, leads to perseverance. This whole idea that there's now this perseverance that takes place. And the word perseverance simply means to obey immovably. Like, I just refuse to quit. And it says, take the prophets, for example. Take the prophets. Why would James bring up the prophets when talking about patience? We tend to venerate the prophets. They're these great people. We know their words. They did these great things. They followed the call of God. It's an amazing thing. Isaiah Anytime you're commissioning a missionary, you, you quote Isaiah 6, 8, who will I send? And the missionary says, here I am, Lord, send me. And we cheer from on. Way to go. You volunteered for service unlike any of the rest of us. Isaiah 6, 8 is awesome. It's this warming, quickens your pulse sort of passage. You read the rest of Isaiah and you figure some things out. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then for 30 years goes and preaches as God called him to with no gain. 30 years of preaching failure is what God called him to. Jeremiah is preaching in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, take the prophets. The people that he is supposed to be leading and ministering to, they disobey. As a result of their disobedience, their, their kind of whole society is destroyed. The, the people become, the nation is exiled. Jeremiah is here going, this is not, I don't think this is what I signed up for. I was going like, to lead us to victory. And God tells Jeremiah, go and preach to the next exiled people to accept the exile, which is the last thing they wanted. He says, I, I don't know if that's a good idea, Lord. And God says, do it. And you read Jeremiah 11, and what you see is Jeremiah's friends were plotting to kill him. Here I am, Lord, send me. What about Hosea? God says, go marry Gomer. Experience unfaithfulness from your spouse over and over again. 
As if God was saying to his prophet, the only way to be my prophet is to understand my life, which is to love a bride that is continually unfaithful. And if you and I would then consider the prophets, then we might see ourselves honestly and go, we are the bride that can't quite get it right. We are the bride that our sin is the lack of faithfulness to God, and we we just fall short, and God looks at us and goes, I still got you. Father, I'm trying so hard. I'm trying to do everything I knew, but I failed you again. I got you. You're mine. I've got you. And you and I struggle to see ourselves honestly, and as a result, we treat the world around us with impatience, and what it really is is we are projecting upon the world our own issue, which is that we have not gotten to a place of humility enough to say that, Father, I am so indebted so in need of grace every day. Take the prophets. That doesn't sound fun. Most of us would say, you know what, that's good for the prophets. I'm glad they did what they did, but that's not God's will for me. You know, 30-year failure as a preacher or, or, you know, go and do this thing and have people mad at me. I'm not down with that. And so we begin to search out God's will. And it's funny It's funny how God's will always lines up with the more comfortable or wealthy existence for us. If seeking God's will always leads to your enrichment and comfort, it is time to consider who your God really is. That's a hard one. When I pray for God's will, if I'm not careful, I am always prone to think that God's will of two paths is the one that leads to greater comfort or greater wealth for me. And yet I read the scriptures and I see people following God's plan for their lives and I very rarely see that as the outcome. Prophets had to find patience with God. They had to find immovable obedience. That's perseverance. What they couldn't see, what they couldn't see is that millions of God's people would one day know their teachings. Millions of God's people would one day memorize their words. They lived in misery and failure, many of them. And verse 11 yet says, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Meaning that Job, living his life, could not see that all of the afflicted in generations that would come would look to Job as a person of comfort. You think Job in the middle of his storm was going, this is awesome. People are totally going to be inspired by my perseverance in this. No. No. What did his wife say to do? Curse God and die. I give you a sense for what's going on in that household? You think you've had some big fights? Your wife ever said, curse God and die? Hope not. Job is now an inspiration for anyone who is afflicted. Job is an inspiration for anyone going through a battle or a hurdle or is in a season where you feel like, man, what are you doing, God? But he couldn't see it. And yet the verse 11, you, in being patient and persevering, we'll all see what the Lord was coming to bring about. Because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so at the base of all of this, when you're going through a trial at the base of this, the question that we ask is, do you trust that God is good? Do you trust that God is good and just and merciful? If you do, odds are you'll begin to persevere in a different way. Then if you go, you know what, maybe he has it out for me. 
Which becomes the question, where do we find this level of patience, this level of humility, this level of long-suffering? Where do we find it? How do we get it? I would say our impatience, if we're doing a diagnostic, is seen in our anger. Okay? Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, do not sin. Which is important. We'll just see. It's possible to be angry and not sin. We tend to say any anger is sin. It's possible to be angry without sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So here's what you need to see in this. This is why we're going here. There's two types of anger in the New Testament. One uh, is the word is thumos, and it means a burst of rage. This is sin. This is me turning around to are we there yet um, and just breathing fire upon my children. That's no good. A second type of anger you would see in the New Testament is called orge. And this is, this is settled opposition. A refusal to move for the cause of justice. This would look like uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, this would look like a lunch counter in the South with a group of African American people saying, I refuse to move. This is unjust. And I'm angry enough to sit here until you either serve me or arrest me. This is 1956, a bus boycott, where people say, we are angry enough. We're not going to deal with this anymore. We're not going to play by your rules anymore. This is Rosa Parks saying, I'm not leaving my seat, sir. In her anger, she had a settled opposition to injustice. And as a result of collected anger, justice was brought. So there's a difference between throwing a brick through a window and organizing an angry opposition to injustice. But it's possible to be angry and not be in sin. Here's why we're talking about this. Rage attacks a person. Opposition attacks a problem. Rage attacks the person. That's one anger. Opposition attacks a problem. Illustration would be this, if, if let's theoretically, hypothetically, it's never happened before, will never happen, but let's say, let's just pretend that I had forgotten my anniversary, right? Let's just pretend. And now you don't know if I actually did and I'm trying to hide it or not. You'll never know. Let's pretend I forgot my anniversary and let's pretend that it had sort of um, maybe aggravated my spouse. It's sort of a pretty important day that we remember how great it is to be married to each other. And I forgot, hypothetically. She has an option of how to respond, right? She can respond with rage, which she might or might not. And she can attack the person. She could say something like, you know what? You have lots of appointments in your calendar every week for work and you don't miss those. She could say that. She could say, you know what? It, it kind of, to me, if I look at the evidence, it would seem like you really love your job more than you love me because you don't forget about your job. And she'd be right in saying it hypothetically. But what if she said, you know what, you don't forget about your work appointments, but you sure do forget about me. And that makes me so mad that I'm going to do something about it. And so I bought you this calendar and it has every date on it. Remember when you forgot your mom's birthday three years ago, hypothetically? (laughs) It's in there. You're not going to forget it this year. And her anniversary, it's in there, and I'm going to put doctor's appointments in there, and all the personal stuff, it's in there now. 
Because you know what? You have a problem. You forget stuff that you don't put in your calendar. And I don't ever email you to say, don't forget, we're having an anniversary. And so here it is. Here's your thing. And I'm mad at you, and I'm sick of this, and I'm fixing it with you. That would be called settled opposition. I'm not moving until we get this right. See, anger is not abnormal, but dealing well with it is. So to attack the person doesn't actually fix the problem. But to attack the problem builds a bridge between you and another person. Growing in patience is knowing patience. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. It's funny, we keep coming back to forgiveness, isn't it? We're four weeks into this series, and I feel like every week we stumble across another passage that says forgive, reconcile, be made right, go make peace, be unified. Every week I hear more stories of how people in this community are doing that. It's not easy, but you're doing it. So keep doing it. Maybe you've heard it and go, yeah, I need to do that. Maybe this is the next push you need. Hey, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. What does that mean? Patience would then be suffering without retaliation. Christ-like patience is suffering without retaliation. Jesus, in being long-suffering with us, chose to do two things. He didn't address the person and rage against us. He absorbed the pain that we brought. So Jesus absorbs pain and then he addresses the problem. He absorbs the pain and addresses the problem. So for Jesus, patience looked different than it usually does for you and I. I rage first, apologize, figure it out later. And Christ absorbs pain. How many of our relationships that we need to fix, how many of our unreconciled pieces of our lives, the things we're holding from our spouse that they did six months ago, we haven't even told them that it still bothers us. How many of those things are we allowing the pain to fester? And how many of them if we truly absorb the pain and say, you know what, I can hold that and I'm going to love you well in it. That's what Jesus did. Christ-like patience is that in the garden, he's arrested and there's no retaliation. In prison, he's mocked, and there's no retaliation. In chains, he's spit on, there's no retaliation. In the cell, he's whipped, there's no retaliation. Crown of thorns on his head, no retaliation. In the square, in front of everyone, he's flogged, no retaliation. In the procession, he becomes jeered, there's no retaliation. On Calvary, he's pierced, no retaliation. Nails into his flesh, No retaliation on the cross. He's humiliated. No retaliation. He is naked and abandoned, and there is no retaliation. In death, he is forsaken. There's no retaliation. In darkness and abandonment, there is no retaliation. Jesus absorbs the pain that comes from the result of our sin, and he chooses to address the problem by taking it upon himself and making us right with God through his death and resurrection. That's the picture of what reconciliation looks like. We were reconciled because Christ chose to live a life that refused to retaliate for the pain inflicted upon him. He absorbed the pain and he addresses the problem of our sin. He doesn't address the problem of you, he addresses your problem. That's long-suffering. And we must see that type of patience and then yearn for it in our own lives. Because patience produces a great harvest. Because sometimes the difference between good and great is a little bit more patience. 
the tomb is rolled back, not so he can get out, but so that we can see in. He's not there. His resurrection becomes our redemption. His long-suffering leads to our salvation. And so I would argue there's no greater witness of the beauty and the glory of Jesus than a friend who will not give up. A parent who won't stop trying or a spouse who simply refuses to leave. Reality for us is in our culture, we have a tendency to be on when people are looking and off when they are not. So when we leave this building today, there will be no spotlight following us, no cheering crowd, no award show if we do really well. There's no immediate glory when we walk out those doors. But who we really are is seen in the quiet moments, in the mundane corners of our lives. Who we really are is in the shadows of our hearts, and it's known by God the Father. Because the, the judge is in the corner watching. Do not grumble, because the judge is there and he's watching. Those thought bubbles are heard by God. That grumbling is heard by God. That impatience is heard by God. And what God's response to that is, is look at my son. Look at my son. Look what he endured because he loves you. Look what he would go through because he loves you. Look at the way he did it because he loves you. So to grow in patience is to grow in the presence of the long-suffering and perfectly patient Savior. So if we were going to apply this this week, here's what I would challenge you to do. Capture the grumbling. Try to be aware of the person who doesn't go when the light turns green or doesn't return your text message fast enough or messes up your order or didn't finish their project on time, therefore putting you behind. Capture the grumbling and call it what it is in your own head. Second, once you capture it, recognize it for what it is. It's pride. It's simply pride of saying my time was worth more than yours or my life is somehow more valuable than yours or that I don't make mistakes like you. So we capture the grumbling. We call it pride. In that, we gain repentance. Father, change my heart. If you say it a thousand times this week, it's, it's worth it changed my heart. And then fourth and finally, remember Christ, who endured so much with no retaliation, who gave us the path. Is what does it look like to be Christ-like? It means absorb the pain, deal with the person, love them well. And if we can do that, capture the grumbling, call it what it is, and then repent from that, you and I will find ourselves days, weeks, months, years from now being a more patient people. Not because patience is the goal, but because patience is the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is the result of living out the Christ life for all to see. So what we're going to do now is we're going to, uh, band's going to come back up and lead us in worship, and we have a chance to remember. We have a chance to remember this long-suffering Christ. And we do it weekly, and so we can take it for granted, and yet every time we come up and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, it's our chance as believers to say, Lord, you were patient. You were long-suffering. You went through so much that I could be made right. And so we're going to do that. So we invite you to do that during the course of these songs. Whenever you feel led to do so, you can do so. If you are a guest with us and that's something you're not ready for, there's no pressure. If you're still uh, seeking, 
you still have questions about whether or not Christianity is even for you. There's no pressure for you to do any of this. No one is watching or we're not worried about it. We want you to be comfortable where you are and know that you're in the right place. That God does not have you here by accident. And so if you should choose not to get up and partake in this symbolic sort of feast with us, my challenge to you would be to look at the words on the screen. What is God speaking to you? What do you need to hear today? I would ask you to stand with me and we're going to pray and then we can worship. Heavenly Father, we are your children. God, if, if we're honest, and it's hard for us to be honest, Father, we are not the most patient children. God, I will confess, and I know that hearts in this room will join me, that it is my pride that finds me grumbling at inconveniences, at other people's uh, slowing down of my life, at other people's uh, shorting out of my plan. That is my pride. Father, we want to collectively recognize that we're a prideful people. Father, would you make us more humble? Would you do so by showing us the cross again today? By allowing us to remember A, what it costs to get us here. But B, Father, the picture of your son just methodically enduring so much for us. God, my prayer is that that would humble us and would create in us a desire to love people the same way. 